Amen. Amen. You guys sound marvelous this morning. That was a, a, a joy to me. Please take your Bible and meet me in the book of Jonah. Jonah's in the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament, between Obadiah and Micah. And while you're turning there, I just want to piggyback a little bit off of what uh, Sarah mentioned earlier in terms of um, uh, our response to uh, Hurricane Harvey. Obviously, um, most of us, I would assume perhaps even all of us, have just been um, kind of glued to the TV or the news reports coming out each day and in terms of just the magnitude of um, devastation that this storm has brought and, uh, and, and clearly the relief and recovery effort is going to take uh, not just months but years really and so um, and it's been wonderful to see the outpouring of support across the country uh, to help in that recovery effort. And I know that some of you are asking how you can help. And so I do want to just draw your attention to this flyer that was in your bulletin this morning. It's a two-sided flyer. And you'll see that on the one side here is uh, a little write-up put out by World Hope International. Uh, We have partnered with World Hope before our church. You may remember... um, When Katrina hit in 2005, uh, we sent some teams to New Orleans, and then uh, then our very own Stu, Nimi, Stu and Renee, um, through some connections made in World Hope, they kind of became our West Coast disaster relief coordinators. Um, And through that effort, Stu and Renee met a man named Steve Adams, Steve is with, if you turn this over, Steve is with Poured Out Ministries, and this tells a little bit about what he and his team are doing. They're out of uh, Michigan, I think just outside of Detroit, and and they are mobilizing a team that can help with relief and recovery. And so I know that, Stuart, you've been talking with Steve, and uh, I know I'm catching you off guard, but is there anything that you'd want to share in terms of those conversations and church participation or how we can be praying or supporting the effort. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So uh, there are opportunities to support the relief and recovery effort, either through monetary donations, if you're inclined to give in that way. I haven't talked to anybody about how to do this, but I'm just going to make a decision now that if, if you want to give through the church that way, you can, you can give to East Parkway and just note Harvey on the check. Um, and then as we get more information in terms of supplies that are needed, and perhaps even at some point down the road, there might be a work team or two that we send, we'll certainly pass that on to you. But you can talk to us. You can obviously talk to Renee and Stu. And we'll just try to keep you informed in terms of what we're doing uh, as a church, as God leads. Okay? Thank you. Stuart, Renee, thank you. 
Um, happy Labor Day weekend to each of you. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thanks for spending at least part of your holiday with the church. Uh, it is great to see Casey and Rose. Thank you for being here. It, was, it is great to see Jeff and Andrea. Thank you. Or Jeff and Caroline. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Um, and we're just excited. For many, Labor Day signals kind of the end of one season and the beginning of another. School has begun or, or will begin this week. Many businesses are coming out of summer uh, with new areas of emphasis for the fall. Uh, retailers are stocking their shelves with new things. And September, in many ways, also marks uh, a new beginning for churches, including ours. And so life groups are starting up, ministries are launching into a new quarter. And today we start a new series, sermon series, uh, a study through the book of Jonah. It's been some time since I've wanted to preach a series uh, on the minor prophets. I would say that I've been kind of been thinking about this for about a year. About a year I've been thinking about a series on the minor prophets. And the more that I um, kind of reviewed those 12 books, the more I was drawn specifically to Jonah. Now, whether or not our series through Jonah will lead to further studies through the rest of the prophets, I don't know kind of holding that loosely, but what I do know is, um, is that our journey through this brief story, which is just four chapters in length, will be both encouraging and challenging, because uh, the story of Jonah provides a window into God's heart and a much-needed look into your own. This morning, I simply want to introduce the series, and I want to do it in four ways. First, I want to read the entire book. I think that's important at the start to kind of get an overview of what's happening. It should take me about eight minutes to read the entire book. Uh, then I want to give a brief bio, very brief, on the man Jonah and why the book of Jonah matters uh, then I have a very helpful and well-done video that offers perspective on how to read and understand Jonah. Lastly, I want to close with some, uh, some thoughts that aim toward personal application. So that's where we're going this morning. How many of you are familiar with Jonah? Okay. Uh, just... Shout it out there. What comes to mind when you think about Jonah? Okay. Okay. Disobedience, persistence, whale, and some said a big fish. A little more accurate. What else? Gospel. Good. How long has it been? Has it, how long has it been since you've read Jonah? More than six months? More than a year? Okay, more than a few years, maybe. Well, good. This is uh, going to be very good for us all. Let's, let, let's read it together. I want to first just pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for um, 
the opportunity to jump into a new part of your word that, that, like a jewel, we're able to hold it up and look at it from a different angle and really see your heart, um, come to understand more of what makes you tick, the things that you love. And of course, uh, whenever we do this, whenever we Whenever we draw close to you and we take a, a, a close look at you and we start to understand you, we learn things about ourselves. And, and so we're grateful for the opportunity to not only learn about you in this series, but also learn about us. And I pray that you would take both of those things and, uh, and really impress them upon us. Even now, as we read through Jonah, will you... Um, Will you make the reading of your word to be effective in the hearts of your people? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord 
and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city, and he set to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night and should I not pity Nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle Amen. Unlike many of the prophets, even as we learn this morning, the story of Jonah is relatively easy to recall. Even among those who know little about the Bible. It's unique among the prophetical writings because it focuses less on what Jonah said and more on what Jonah did, or in this case, didn't do. So who was Jonah and why should we care? We know that Jonah was from the ancient town of Gath-Hefer, located just north and to the east of Nazareth. We know that he served during the time of King Jeroboam II, who, who held the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel for 41 years, from 793 to 753 B.C. You recall that the division of Israel into two kingdoms, north and south, took place around 900 B.C. as the Assyrian Empire rose to world dominance. We know that Jonah is among the earliest of the prophets, that he's a contemporary of Amos and Hosea, who appeared on the scene roughly 800 years before the birth of Christ. And we know that the lone mention of him in the Bible, aside from this book that bears his name, is found in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. There, he prophesied that King Jeroboam uh, would regain Israel's borders that had been lost to Assyria years prior. And this led to unprecedented success, expansion, and economic prosperity for the northern kingdom. But the people, including the king, were steeped in sin. So from the outside, all may have appeared well, but the nation had strayed from God. Now, in this book, we see God's relentless pursuit not only of the lost, but also of the saved. In these pages, Jonah is seen as he really is. And it's not pleasant. He runs from God. He disobeys God or obeys reluctantly. He grows angry with God. He's not what you'd expect from a man of God, certainly not a prophet. He's uncaring resentful, bigoted, hateful, and defiant toward the Lord. 
though he appears pious at times, like his self-description to the sailors in chapter 1, and though he sometimes arrives at the right conclusions, like his prayer of chapter 2, he also gets it very, very wrong on more than a few occasions. So perhaps the biggest reason why we need the book of Jonah and why we have the book of Jonah is because we can relate with Jonah. Frankly, we are Jonah. I am more like Jonah than I care to admit. And trust me, so are you. There's a little bit of Jonah in all of us And there's a whole lot of Jonah in many of us. So with that, what I want to do now is I want to show a brief nine-minute video that outlines the book very well. And when it's finished, I'll close with four thoughts to keep in mind as we journey through this book. I think you'll enjoy this video. The Book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet, rather it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. 
But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now, the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel, and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange, watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer, where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him, and he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong, or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy.
The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that you would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill, waiting to see what might happen. You know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there, in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God, again, asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that great? By the way, I have found, I stumbled upon this resource uh, about a year ago. It's called The Bible Project. And they put out fantastic materials uh, that help you to read Scripture. They actually have a whole track called Read Scripture. And so you can look them up and you will find uh, just some wonderful resources that can be of encouragement to you in your uh, own intake of the Word of God. I want to spend the next 15 to 20 minutes just sharing with you um, four thoughts that kind of that are kind of um, directing my prayers. Things that I want us to come away with by the time we've finished Jonah, and even as we walk through it. And the first is this: I want you to learn the heart of God. Learn 
the heart of God. Here we see God in pursuit of people in great need. Now, why would he do that? Why does God pursue us like that? It's because he cares for us, right? He cares. So think about that family member who who doesn't know the Lord, that friend that you care about, that co-worker or classmate. Think about that neighbor whose marriage is disintegrating, who just lost their job, who just lost their child. Think about those in Houston who just lost their homes and most of their belongings. And what, have all, what do all of these have in common? They are all in need of hope and healing. And they are all known by God. God cares about a person's plight and he moves to do something about it. Nineveh was among the great cities of the ancient Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians, hear this, were known for their wickedness. By and large, they were a cruel and evil people, yet God did not give up on them. When their evil came up before Him, I love this, the very first part of the book, chapter 1, verse 2, when their evil came up before God, God moved toward them with a heart of compassion. That's telling. In this book, we see God's compassion. We see His responsiveness to prayer. We see His response to the repentant. We see His quickness with mercy. We see His grace and steadfast love. We see how He disciplines those He loves. Sometimes, those of us in the church are a bit top-heavy in that we know a lot about God and we rightly, rightly study the Word of God, but all too often we miss the heart of God along the way. It's been said that the biggest void in our Christian experience is the distance between our heads and our hearts. Jonah urges us to learn the heart of God. Number two. I'm praying that you will identify the disconnect between God's heart and your own. Can we be honest? There are some things about God, things He does and calls us to do that aren't always easy to swallow. There are parts of God's Word that are inconvenient and hard to accept. There are pieces that we don't understand 
and in our heart of hearts, we don't agree with. There are attributes of God that shine much-needed light on some of the less-than-stellar parts of our own character. I was faced with this within a day of becoming a Christian, and God reminded me of this this week. I'd been going to church for a few months when on one Sunday the pastor presented the gospel and gave an invitation, and I went home that Sunday after church into my bedroom, and I reflected on what he said. And I said something like, God, if what Pastor Kent said is true, then I need you. More than that, I want you. God, will you please come into my life? Will you take hold of my life? And will you teach me how to live? And that was it. That was my conversion experience. There, were no, there, there wasn't a lot of drama. There were no fireworks. I don't even think I told anybody at first. But I knew something had changed, which came to light the very next day. The very next day, I went to school, and something unexpected happened. Now, I've shared this with you before. And I'm thankful that, I'm, that God has transformed me in this very practical way. But I had somewhat of a foul mouth as a teenager. It wasn't as foul as some, but it was foul nonetheless. And that next morning, I said something that was about someone that was unkind and untrue and outright mean with a few colorful words thrown in for added effect. Unfortunately, it wasn't the first time I had spoken like this, but for the first time, it bothered me. There was a check in my spirit. There was conviction for the first time. In that moment, as a new Christian, I learned more about myself and my heart, more about God and His heart, and I wanted more of His. I don't need any special insight or training to know that even as you sit here this morning, similar disconnects exist within your hearts too. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure, I am sure, there are areas in your life where there is a gap between what God desires and how you are behaving. And what I'm saying is that the book of Jonah shines light on that. And that's a good thing. Because the more that we identify those specific disconnects and deal with them honestly before the Lord, the more we grow in the Lord. So I'm praying 
that you identify those disconnects between God's heart and your own. It's impossible to grow in the Lord without loving what God loves, which leads to the third point. Grow in your love for the lost. Grow in your love for the lost. Now listen, hear me on this. I almost said, grow in your concern for the lost. But after thinking about it, I I changed the word from concern to love because here's the deal. Most of us are already concerned for the lost. Most Christians understand the ravages of sin and the devastation it brings to our lives and to our world. Most of us genuinely feel for others who still live in the pain of that devastation. And we sincerely appreciate, most of us, what God has done in Christ to save us from it. Most of us, you see, who've been saved by Christ already Uh, We are already concerned for those who remain lost, but there is a world of difference between being concerned, hear this, and doing something about it. And the difference is love. The whole tenor of the Bible is love. It's a historical record of what God has done in love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this is love, we're told. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I read somewhere that Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet sent to a nation outside of Israel. Unlike the others, Jonah is sent not to God's chosen people, but to the outside world because God cares for those on the outside. We must grow in our love for the lost, moving beyond concern to doing something about it. And then fourth and finally, arise and go. It's kind of the tagline that I put on this series. Twice, God tells Jonah to arise and go. First in chapter 1 and again in chapter 3. Arise means to stand up to get up, to get to your feet and ready yourself. Go means to go. 
to move forward, to advance. God's message in the book of Jonah is in many ways the Old Testament equivalent to the great commission of the new. I want you to see that. God called Jonah to get up and advance his mission in the world, and Jesus told us to do essentially the same. I love how Jonah ends. Even the way that Jonah ends is telling. The book ends literally in the middle of a conversation between Jonah and God in mid-thought as God describes how much he cares for and pities the Ninevites. And I think that, as, that, that the fact that it ends this way in mid-thought suggests that God has more to say, that God is still speaking not only to Jonah, but to all who come after Jonah, including us. Sometimes arise and go means just that. It's a literal getting up and going out to share God's message of kindness and love and patience and forbearance and long-suffering, His holiness and just nature and His willingness to forgive any and all who turn from their sins and place their trust in the Savior instead. Sometimes it means that. It means getting up and going to share that message. Sometimes arise and go begins by knocking on your neighbor's door to invite them to dinner to hear their story and to share yours. Sometimes arise and go simply means you taking the initiative to bring your faith into the conversation uh, instead of waiting for others to ask. As I, as I read this book, and as we will read it together, I want to be empowered in my efforts to reach out to the unbelievers in my life with the message of Jesus. And of course, I want that for you too. I want to arise from the missed opportunities of the past and go with God in what's coming next. And I trust you want the same. So in sum, I'm saying to allow Jonah's story to influence your own. I titled this sermon, I Am Jonah, because I want you to see yourself in these pages. See how utterly unqualified Jonah was for the task to which he was called. How unwilling and imperfect. And yet God accomplished his purposes all the same. See that. But what strikes me about this is it wasn't just that God intended to reach the Ninevites. It's that he intended to reach Jonah too. And in this there is hope and tremendous encourage, encouragement because in this we see Jonah's story intersecting with our own. So learn the heart of God. Uh, identify those areas of disconnect between God's heart and your own. Grow. Ask God. Make this a prayer. Grow in your love 
for the lost. And arise and go. There's hope in the pages of this book as God reveals who He is, who you are, and who you can become by grace. I'm excited about the days ahead. Amen. God, we thank you for the time this morning. We do pray that you would impress these things upon us for your name's sake and for our great good. In Christ we pray, amen.